Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. And if you've listened to any Global Medical Device podcast episodes over the past, gosh, I don't know, it's been a lot of years now. Uh, there's a good chance you've heard Mike and I uh, chat about a variety of topics ranging from quality to regulatory to kappa and, and a litany of other things. But why, Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Yeah. So for those listening, you know, they may not know there's, you know, you and I kind of riff back and forth in between the times that we chat and try to find topics that are somewhat evergreen or at least timely and relevant. And, you know, one topic that I think is, it's been timely and relevant for a long, long time and probably timely and relevant for the, at least the, the uh, long foreseeable future is regulatory submissions, and specifically here in the U.S., uh, you know the the workhorse. I think, uh, as you've referred to it before, of, of regulatory submissions from FDA for med device is five ten k. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about that today. Yeah, I think John, that's a great idea. And as you said, the 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 five ten k is without a doubt the workhorse uh, um, in the in the United States of the medical device industry. And in spite of that, or perhaps because of that, it continues to be a source of problems, a source of delays, the source of rejections with uh, a lot of companies in this industry. And one of the most common questions I get from my customers and from people across the board is how do we avoid these common problems? Yeah. And so I came across this column, John, written about five years ago yeah. from this uh, really oddball character <laughs> named John Spear. I don't know. I'm, I need to yeah. beat this guy. Uh, called Seven Common Mistakes That Sink 510K Clearances. And I thought what we could do today in today's discussion is kind of go through the seven uh, common mistakes as you've identified them and sure. talk about if anything has changed in the last five years. And more importantly, how can people listening today avoid these common mistakes? Does that make yeah. sense, John? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad you uh, blew the dust off that article. And and I I hope, I guess we'll find out here in a few moments, but but I hope this this article from five years ago is obsolete and irrelevant today. But my suspicion is it's probably not. I would love to uh, <laughs> to agree with you, John. But unfortunately, um, that might be true in the land of uh, rainbows and unicorns. But it's not true in the real world where I work. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's, so let's. Yeah. So let's dig right into it and start out with the first of the seven common mistakes that you identified, and that is inconsistency with documentation. And let me start out with a direct quote from your column, John, and that is the intended use statement often is screwed up 
and I, you know, that that's yeah. your words, screwed up by incomplete application into other sections of the 510K. I'm pretty sure I know what you mean by that, John, but for the yeah. benefit of the audience, so why don't you explain what you mean by that? Sure. And folks, we'll um, be sure to provide a link to that article from five years ago so that you can, you know, read along after the fact. Um, but nonetheless, so the intended use statement, uh, you know, is a, a pretty important, I think, premise for any 510K submission because, you know, in, in, for all intents and purposes, that that statement helps regulators and helps you determine, you know, how your product is ultimately going to be classified, you know, what you can claim and all these sorts of things about the product. But that statement is, I don't remember exactly, you, you probably know exactly, but but I know it is it is stated several times throughout a 510k submission. My memory recalls there's at least a handful of times where throughout a 510k where that statement is is stated. I believe there is one section that is completely dedicated to the intended use, and there's a, a, a form I believe that that one fills out to identify what that is. But there's several other places, other sections within a 510k where the statement is also listed as well. What I mean by screwed up is, uh, sadly, I've seen this a lot. I suspect you probably have a time or two as well, where that statement is not the same. It is not consistent throughout one's own 510k submission. It's stated one way in one place and maybe slightly differently in another place and so on and so forth. That is, uh, I got to believe that as a that submission is sent to FDA for review, especially during that the refuse to accept window, yeah, that fourteen day window. That's that's the easiest thing for a, a reviewer to say. This is not the same throughout. So reject, send it back, which it makes sense. You know, if, if I'm a reviewer, I want that statement to be the same, consistent, verbatim, word for word throughout that five ten k. And if it's not, that says to me as a reviewer, maybe these people don't know what they're doing. I agree with you 100%, John. In fact, one of the most common reasons why submissions, not just 510K submissions, but submissions across the board, de novos, PMAs, and so on, are rejected is because of what you just said. Because the labeling and what we're talking about here is what I call the high-level labeling, the intended use and the indications for use. When they are repeated, you're exactly right, in all regulatory submissions, the high-level labeling is repeated several times. Uh, And by the way, one of my frustrations with with so many submissions being so long is because the same information is repeated over and over and over again. But that's a topic of a different discussion. But one of the most common reasons why they're rejected is because the high-level labeling is not when it's repeated, it's not repeated exactly the same way. Right. And as we talked about before, when FDA is doing their job, and let's be honest, I know we're on a recorded podcast here, but FDA doesn't always do their job. They will scrutinize the high-level labeling word by word, character by character, punctuation by punctuation mark. Other parts of the submission, I know for a fact, you know, are never read by anybody in some cases, but the high level labeling is very much an exception. So you really need to make sure that you're consistent. And I know there are a lot of tools that will help companies, you know, prepare their submissions and make sure that that doesn't happen, but it still happens anyway. And here's a simple piece of advice. Most people today have Microsoft Office or something the equivalent of that. I'm a big fan of using not just simply copy and paste but copy and paste link. Copy yeah. and paste link is a, is, a, is a feature in Microsoft Office that you create your high-level labeling in one document. And then in, just simply, uh, instead of simply copying and pasting it into your submission or anywhere else, 
you do a copy and paste link. And that way, not only is the uh, is the information exactly the same every time, but if you want to change it, you only have to change it one time and it's Absolutely. automatically changed in all of the other documents. So there are very simple solutions. Yeah. We're not talking about rocket science here, John. They're very simple solutions to a lot of this. So again, one of the most common mistakes that people make is when they repeat their labeling, it's not repeated exactly the same. Yeah. Absolutely. Another thing that you brought up in that same section, John, is a common mistake is confusion between statements that are more about indicated use than intended use. And this is something that you and I have talked about before, the difference between indications for use and intended use. So maybe we should spend a minute or two and just kind of remind our audience the difference between those two statements. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you have a very clear and concise explanation on the difference between indications for use and intended use. So, you know, I can't say it better than you. So uh, <laughs> so if you don't mind reminding folks how, I mean, there's obviously a lot of similarities, but but there are some important distinctions between those two statements as well. Yeah. Well, first of all, John, thank, thank you for those kind words. Yeah, I'm welcome. happy to recap what I see as the difference. And I'll just remind our audience that you and I have talked about this topic in detail in other podcasts and even in some of my webinars. So maybe we can refer to sure. some of those for our audience. But in a nutshell, in, here's the big difference between intended use and indications for use. Intended use focuses on the device, whereas indications for use focuses on the patient. So taking that one step further, when I say intended use focuses on the device, that means what does the device do? How does it work? Its mechanism of action and so on and so on. Whereas when I say indications for use, focuses on the patient. What I mean by that is what disease, injury, or condition is the device intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat. Right. So in, intended use focuses on the device, what it does, how it works. Indications for use focuses on the patient. What disease, injury, or condition is the device intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat. Now, taking that just a step further, I've seen in several regulatory submissions that have gone through the FDA where the intended use and the indications for use are flat out wrong. And when I point out to the FDA, they say, yes, Mike, we agree with you. These statements are wrong. However, these submissions have gone through, so there's nothing we can do about it. That's our U.S. government hard at work. What, what yeah. can we do? And, and one other thing, and then we'll move on to your, to your next uh, common mistake, John. One other thing about the labeling is there is no consistency across CDRH when it comes to intended use and indications for use. It drives me nuts when I hear the politicians at FDA say, well, it doesn't matter what part of FDA you're dealing with or what reviewer you're dealing with, because all of the reviewers are following the same regulation the same way. Well, with all due respect, well, you know what? I mean, does anybody <laughs> really believe that? Here's the thing. In some groups in CDRH, they like to have the what I call the traditional intended use and indications for use separate and distinct, which is actually my personal preference. Right. However, in other groups within CDRH, they're okay with what I call a blended intended use indications for use statement. What you need to do before going to the FDA, and I always do this before a pre-sub, John, is find out, since we're talking about 510Ks here, clearly there's precedent for this, find out where in your particular section of CDRs that you're dealing with, do they tend to prefer separate intended use and indications for use or a blended statement, and then give them what it is in, in that format. Yeah. So once again, John, this is definitely a common mistake, but it's, it's a mistake that is very easily avoided. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so should we move on to the to the next yeah, one? Sure, let's do it. Okay, 
So the next common mistake that you identify in your column is not using the checklist. And you're referring specifically to the refuse to accept or RTA checklist. By the way, there's not there's an RTA checklist, obviously, for the 510K, but right. there's also one for the de novo and for the PMA as well. And so, I think there's also different versions for 510Ks, depending on if it's a traditional or a special or an abbreviated too, right? Absolutely correct. There are different versions of the RTA checklist. If you just look at the 510K RTA checklist guidance, there are different versions for each of those different 510K types. There is no checklist available yet for the newest version of the 510K, the safety and performance right. or S510K. Whether we need one or not, I'm not sure because it's yeah. so similar to the abbreviated one, but you're exactly right. There are versions. And as I think I pointed out in previous discussions, when we talked about the RTA in more detail, John, ironic as it might sound, the abbreviated RTA checklist for the 510K is actually longer than for the traditional 510K. And comparing the 510K to the de novo to the PMA RTA checklist, Ironic as it sounds, the PMA checklist is actually much shorter than either the 510K or the de novo checklist. So anyway, that's just a little bit of regulatory trivia for you and our, our audience to chew on. But specifically in your column under under this, this uh, common mistake of not using the checklist, you say, follow the checklist exactly. Then give your reviewer a heads up by referring to the relevant pages in your document next to the checklist items. Can you explain to your to the yeah. audience, John? exactly what you mean by that. I, again, I think I know what you mean, but let's hear it in your work. Yeah, sure. So the RTA checklist is, I think, was intended to be a tool for the FDA reviewer to, when submission received for them to go through and make sure all the uh, constituent parts and components and what is expected to be in that submission is included. So it's kind of a guide, if you will, for that reviewer. But as submitter, as, as one who might be submitting a 510K, it should also be a guide or at least, you know, um, one of those final checklists that I review as well. You know, the glorious thing about regulations a lot of time is, um, if, within reason anyway, FDA tells you what they're going to do, what they're going to look at and, and that sort of thing. Now, you know, sometimes you get into the details and there might be, you know, some nuances or, or some specifics that, that you can't plan or anticipate, but, you know, that's fine. But the RTA checklist tells FDA what, what they're looking for and it tells you as submitter, this is what FDA is expecting. Now, there's also, you know, the 510K um, submission contents that's pretty well defined and articulated as well. Uh, you know, there certainly are guidances for this sort of thing, but um, the FDA that they've they've added this step, the the refuse to accept step that's been in place now for a bit, um, and I think that was in res direct response to the industry because the industry is like, oh wait, you know, we we don't know um, what happens when we submit our five ten k. We don't hear back from FDA. Well, they've in implemented this step. So that within the you know, first, I think, 14 days, if I recall, um, you'll hear back from FDA. Yes, we received it. It looks good to go. And now we're moving on to the substantive review. Well, don't you can make life easier for yourself and for your FDA reviewer if you can put a little annotated reference. I always advise people make a copy of that that refuse to accept checklist list in the comment section where these things are addressed within your submission, what section, what page, et cetera, et cetera. 
so it becomes sort of a, you know, a table of contents or at least an index for that reviewer so they know where to find it and they can flip to the appropriate page. They say, aha, here it is. Looks good to go. And include that when you submit your 510K. I think, you know, trying to, to keep in mind, you know, FDA reviewers see uh, probably dozens, maybe hundreds of submissions, you know, in a, in a finite period of time. Uh, some are better than others. Well, make yours stand out. Make yours easier to read. Help that reviewer understand the story you're telling and where they can find the important uh, contents and, and components that are identified on that checklist. FDA thinks that checklist is important. Uh, so, you know, put some value into it. Help them out a little bit. Help yourself out a little bit. I agree, John. And I give very similar, in fact, substantially equivalent yeah. advice to my customers all the time. As one of my customers likes to say, you have to chew FDA's food for them. And I now repeat that to virtually all of my customers. Um, Don't expect, I think this is a totally unreasonable expectation for a reviewer to jump around and to to look through, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of pages of of information to find, you know, the one piece of information that he or she is looking for. Uh, Quite frankly, that ain't going to happen. And I have customers that tell me, well, we've already described how we do this in a publication. How about if we just you know, cite the publication or provide the publication as, a, as, a, as an appendix at the back of the document. Well, why would you expect somebody at FDA to re- read through some some article and extract from it whatever information that you think is, is, is the important exactly. information? You literally have to chew FDA's food for them. And I don't yeah. mean that to be patronizing. I really don't. But if you want to be in that small percentage of uh, people that have their 510Ks uh, cleared on the very first time, and not in the very large majority where you get these uh, RTAs or these questions back and ping pong back and forth. Some of the tips that John and I are talking about today will do exactly, yeah. you know, um, will we'll we'll help you do that. Um, okay. Moving on to the next, next common mistake, uh, and that is not providing all expected testing. Mm-hmm. not providing all expected testing. And one of the things that you mentioned in your column, John, is FDA used to accept, quote, I promise statements, or in the regulatory world, what, what we call a promissory note. Can you explain to the audience, John, what you mean by an I promise yeah. statement or a promissory note? Yeah. Now, keep in mind, I'm I'm old. <laughs> I've been doing this for a bit. I mean, the gray hair and the beard should, uh, should give some of that away. But back in when I started my career, you know, five ten Ks have been around since almost before I, I've been alive. So they've been around for nineteen seventy six. Nineteen seventy six. So I was born in seventy five. Back when you know I first entered this industry uh, as product development engineer. I mean, obviously, as we've talked about, the five ten Ks, the workhorse. That was the most common approach that we did. The company I worked for at that time that we pursued for for FDA regulatory submissions. At that time, you know, in the I'm talking late '90s, early 2000s, and this is probably a true statement up until 2010-ish or so, give or take. Sometimes there's tests that are lengthier and and, and whatnot. And um, a couple of examples that come to mind are things like uh, sterilization validation, uh, sometimes shelf life testing. You know, in some cases, some biocompatibility tests, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But back in those days, back in the good old days. We used to be able to say, yes, we acknowledge we need to do this. It's underway. It's in process, et cetera, et cetera. We promise to do this and it will, we promise that it will be done prior to going to market. And that used to be an accepted practice um, back then. But 
my understanding. Well, that's not been uh, an expectation or uh, an accepted uh, practice uh, for for quite some time. And I think the reason is is um, well, it's probably quite obvious. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies, made these I promise or the promissory note commitments, and then they didn't do it. And so now FDA is like, that's not an acceptable practice anymore. If you're submitting a 510k, thou shalt do the testing. We no longer accept, I promise, promissory note commitments because people before you, companies before you, they didn't always follow through and do it. So don't think you can go to, to FDA with 510k with, with some sort of promissory note to commit to do it before you go to market. It, it, it will be expected at, at the time of the submission. Yeah, good point, John. So just to recap, so a promissory note in the regulatory vernacular is something that we say to the FDA, here's 95 or 99% of our submission. These few little bits, whether it's shelf life or sterility data or something like that, we will provide to you a little bit further down the road. In the meantime, will you please you know, chew on what we've given you? That is what was uh, up until several years ago, um, I don't want to say common practice, but it was an accepted practice. Today, it's not so much. And the reason, as you just pointed out, is because regrettably, and I do not take pride about you know saying about this with, with our industry, regrettably, there have been companies and people in them have who have promised to do certain things who have never gone on and do that. And so as a result, FDA has gotten burned a few times. Yeah. And so I wouldn't go so far now, John, as to say that FDA won't take a promissory note yeah. because they do still take them. I've had them taking them, you know, for some of the submissions that I've been involved with very, very recently, but it has become very much the exception rather than the rule. Okay. A promissory note should be kind of like going to the ombudsman. You know, it's a path of least of last resort, you know. Uh, uh, and I have companies all the time. They ask me, well, Mike, can we give FDA, you know, 95 percent of our submission and right. let them start chewing on it? Kind of like my graduate students. You know, can you can I give you a, a draft of my report and you can mark it up and, and give it back to me? So that then I'll. Rep- well, you know, when I teach in, for, in, in universities, they don't pay me enough to do that. <laughs> you know, similarly with with the FDA. So you cannot give them a draft. Right. You can't take it to them with a pre-sub. And if you're planning on doing a promissory note for things like sterility or shelf life or stability testing, definitely make it uh, bring it up in a pre-sub to make sure that it's okay with them. Because if you're springing it on them at the point of actual submission, as you point out very well in your column, John, you might be able to fake it to get it through the RTA, the the administrative review, but they're certainly going to pick it up on the scientific review. So my advice is use it it only the last resort, but if you're going to do it, plan on bringing it up in a pre-sub in advance to make sure that everybody knows that that's what's coming. Absolutely. Okay, moving on to the next of the seven common mistakes. That is not doing real-time shelf life studies. So why don't you explain a little bit what you mean by this, John, and why is this such a common mistake? Sure. And shelf life, I was trying to think, I'm sure there are examples. I, th- I think, well, let me re- re- um, recant a little bit. I, th- I believe FDA is looking for you to address the shelf life uh, for any and all medical devices. Um, I think it's more, um, mm, well, I don't want to guess put a label on whether it's more or less critical, but a lot of my experience, um, certainly in my formative years in, in the industry, uh, I designed and developed single-use disposable devices. And most of the time, not always, these devices were uh, packaged 
and terminally sterilized via ethylene oxide, sometimes gamma or, or what have you. But nonetheless, it's, it's manufactured, sterilized, and it's going to probably sit on a shelf either at a distribution center or at the point of use until such time that it's needed. A lot of the devices that I worked on, you know, we usually targeted a three-year shelf life uh, from, from data sterilization. We can't just make that claim arbitrarily. We have to be able to corroborate that that shelf life is applicable and appropriate for that product. Obviously, if if I'm making, I'll just use my something I'm very familiar with, a catheter that has been packaged in a Tyvek peel pouch that has been sterilized by ethylene oxide. I can't just arbitrarily say, yep, it's just like this other thing. Slap three years on it and we're good to go. I have to be able to support that with, with objective evidence. I have to be able to prove that. But it's it's not pragmatic or practical for me to wait until I have that real-time three-year shelf life data before I submit my 510K. Because obviously, you know, I mean, a 510K, a catheter type de- device, I mean, not I'm not stating specifics here, but generally speaking, I mean, I from concept to, to go to market, you know, that could be an 18 to 36 month project to begin with. So if I have to wait three years after I finalize my design to do the real-time shelf studies, shelf life studies, that's just not pragmatic. So what a lot of companies do is they support this with, you know, oftentimes accelerated aging and, and whatnot, or maybe they go to market with a reduced shelf life instead of the three year, maybe that's the target. Maybe they come to market with a one year or what, what have you. There are a lot of different approaches to this, but Regardless, part of my strategy and my planning, you know, when I'm in product development, I need to basically put that into my my overall plan for this product that I need to reserve quantities of product that have been packaged and sterilized, et cetera, et cetera. And I need to keep them on a shelf over a period of time. And I need to, you know, at certain intervals uh, along the way, I need to pull some of those samples and I need to to conduct representative testing to be able to, to support and demonstrate and corroborate that my product is stable and effective and, and safe and all these sorts of things along that intended shelf life. So I hope I, I rambled a little bit, but hopefully that's a little bit clear on what I meant by that. I think that was that was very good, John. If I could just like add on a, a little bit further, exactly right. Real-time shelf life testing is one option, but most companies don't want to waste wait around for, for that data real-time. So there are oftentimes methods that we can use to accelerate that process by putting your device in a, in a heated environment or with increased humidity or, or something like that. You need to, though, make sure if you're working on a conventional device, there are probably standard methods to do these kinds of things. Yes. And you need to make sure that you're following these standard methods. However, it really comes down to the device itself, the design, and specifically the material. So if you're using a biostable material, if you're use, if you're talking about a, uh, say, a bare metal coronary stent, you know, packaging issues aside, what's the shelf life of that stent? A million years, nothing's going to happen to that stent. But for example, if you're working on a bioabsorbable material, mm-hmm. Now, all bets are off. It's not a biostable material. It's a bioabsorbable material. And further, if you're working with a combination product, putting a drug or a biologic or something like that on a device like a stent, 
you know, doing accelerated testing becomes very, very difficult to do. Yeah. Even traditional shelf life testing becomes very challenging to do. This this takes this conversation, you know, multiple levels uh, higher, John. But putting, uh, never mind a drug, putting a biologic like a monoclonal antibody or a gene inside of a virus on the surface of a stent, the whole notion of putting that on a shelf and having it sit there for some number of weeks or months is just nuts when you think about right. it. So for most of our audience that are working on conventional, as a biomedical engineer, John, dare I say it, boring medical devices, <laughs> shelf life and sterility and stability is pretty straightforward. Right. But for those in our audience that are working on newer, more challenging kind of technologies, such as the ones that just that I just described, now it becomes much more interesting discussion. Most important thing to remember, John, I know you're obviously a big fan of the design controls. One of the most basic tenets of the design controls is that you want to do your final verification and validation testing, your VNV testing, including shelf life and sterility and so on, on your final device. Yes. And that includes your package device after it's been you know, on the shelf for whatever period of time. I want to reiterate the strategy that I also give to a lot of my customers. If ultimately you want to have, say, a three-year shelf life claim, but you don't want to wait if you don't want to hold up your 510k submission to support that claim, especially if you have to do it in real time, you could start out with, say, a six-month or a one-year exactly. claim, get it onto the market that way, and then go back later as a label expansion and increase your shelf life claim that way. Absolutely. That's a common, a, a common strategy. And the last tidbit that I thought I would bring up here to kind of challenge our audience a little bit is... It's one thing to talk about shelf life for traditional medical devices. It's another thing to talk about shelf life for, say, combination products or bioabsorbable materials. But how about the shelf life for an SAMD, software as a medical device? Tricky, right? Most people would say, well, gee, how the heck is shelf life an issue when it comes to software? Well, this is another example, John, of when I see people trying to understand the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. The spirit of the concept of shelf life, the philosophy of shelf life is what happens to your product in the future. Mm -hmm. In the case of software, if your software is running on, say, a computer with Microsoft Windows platform, what happens as future updates are, are uh, issued you know, to that software? So although the, the concept of, of shelf life doesn't maybe map directly to a device like software, philosophically, the concepts are very, very similar, if not the same. Is that, would you agree with that, John, or am I just smoking my socks? No, I, I, I do agree. And I, and I think the, the summary of this topic is, regardless of whether or not you're working on a, quote, boring medical device, <laughs> or a, like an SAMD, or even an electromechanical uh, device, you need to ad address the topic of shelf life. You need to explain, you know, don't don't just assume, oh, well, I'm SAMD, FDA knows it's software, no big deal. Obviously, there's no shelf life because it's not sitting on a shelf. Don't assume that. Explain it. You know, support your, your rationale, you know, provide the rationale and, and the evidence as to why you've taken the stance that you do. But it uh, is, you, you mentioned it's not sitting on the shelf. But let me extend that metaphor a little bit further, John. It is sitting on the a hard drive of your yes. computer or your phone or whatever it is. Right. And even though your device might not be changing, the environment around that device Absolutely. might be changing. And so, uh, again, I would argue that the concept of shelf life, at least philosophically, is directly applicable to software as it is to, to anything else. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's move on to the the last couple of common mistakes that you identify in your column, John. The next one is underestimating risk management requirements. Underestimating risk management requirements. One of the pieces of advice that you give to uh, to the readers of your column, John, is be prepared to show your list of requirements and provide the paper trail for your traceability and your DHF, your design yeah. history file, and the other quality requirements. I'm curious, John, if you can just explain for our audience, how, why is that important in the context of a 510k? Yeah. Again, I'm dating myself a little bit, but definitely can recall long before ISO 14971 that the you know current industry standard for medical device product risk management was established. I also have an opinion that um, design control best practices in and of themselves are a risk management approach because you know you're defining user needs and the requirements. And you're doing the verification and validation of your product to, to you know demonstrate that it works the way it's supposed to for the people that it was it's supposed to work for. Um, so that in and of itself is is a you know risk management practice. But you know in today's world there is a, an expectation I think um, by FDA and, and probably many other or most other modern regulatory bodies that one four nine seven one and risk management practices are are deployed for your device. But a big component of this, like I said, it, it does go back to the design control piece. I mean, you know, you're identifying what can go wrong with your particular product and not, not to sound dire here, but you need to, you know, sometimes when things go wrong, people could get hurt. Uh, so how do you, how are you preventing or how are you controlling um, your device so that uh, those bad things don't happen? Or if those bad things do happen, how are you giving the 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 doctor, the nurse, or you know the user of that product uh, a, a warning, an alarm, or you know some sort of notice that hey, something's not right here? But regardless, you need to be able to to think about all of these different scenarios. And yeah, you think about you know the normal read the DFU, the directions for use. But let's be real; I mean, you and I've talked about this a lot. That's probably the first thing that gets tossed in the garbage whenever uh, someone uh, gets a product. So think about you know other ways. This is you and I have talked a lot about human factors and things in the past, and not to, to rehash that whole topic. But but risk management is is really thinking about all the ways that your product are going to be used, whether used the way you intended uh, and expect, or the way they might actually be used. So I think you know it is an expected best practice these days to to be able to document those types of scenarios and, and those cases and and make sure that you have the right controls with your products so that bad things don't happen. Well, John is a very experienced and very capable, you know, quality professional. You know, I understand and I agree with the importance of documentation. The only thing that I would add to what you just said, John, is in the context of the 510K submission, a lot of that quality documentation doesn't directly go into the submission. It's true. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying it's not important. It's very important. And you have to have all of your quality ducks in a row. But a lot of that stuff comes in in the form of a, of a manufacturing inspection when FDA comes knocking on your door. That's true. Yeah, it's that's not true. part of the actual 510K submission. It is sometimes part of a de novo submission. And it is very often part of a PMA submission. But because we're trying to focus on 510Ks here, I just wanted to, to point that out. And specifically when it comes to risk. And you and I have talked about risk many times, John, and as our audience probably knows, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in risk. 
The risk requirements for the 510K are the most important. It's not the risk management plan. That's important as well. But meeting the risk requirements for the 510K are what's most important. And just to reiterate them very, very quickly, the in order for it to have a successful 510K when it comes to risk, there's two boxes you have to tick. The first is you have to show that there are no risks in your device that are not already present in the predicate. That's risk requirement number one. And risk requirement number two is of the known risks. You have to show that the level of those risks uh, in your device are the same or lower than they are in the predicate. In other words, hypothetically speaking, if if FDA can identify one risk a new risk that's in your device that's not in the predicate, or if they can identify one risk or device that's higher than it is the predicate, then that would be enough, at least theoretically, to trump everything else. And for FDA to say, sorry, your device is not substantially equivalent. You need to be considering a de novo or maybe even a PMA here. And I can also tell you, John, that you know, in the past, those risk requirements have never been interpreted as literally as I just explained them, but right. they are being interpreted that way today. Yeah. For the benefit of our audience, John and I have done a lot of other discussions specifically on risk and provide some references to go into that in much more detail. Uh, but John, let's move on to the, the last two uh, common mistakes for 510Ks. The next one, one of my personal favorites, and that is not demonstrating pr- uh, equivalence to a predicate. Um, I'm pretty sure that I understand what you mean by that, John, but why don't, for, your, for the audience, why don't you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, um, so again, to remind folks, hopefully this is uh, information that, that listeners already know. But the whole premise of a 510K is that you are demonstrating substantial equivalence to a predicate device. In layperson terminology, basically that means I'm comparing my product to something else the FDA has already cleared, and I'm making the case that my device is just as safe with same or known risk as this other product. You know, not to, hopefully that's not too much of an oversimplification, but I need to be able to corroborate and, and demonstrate that. And, and, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, what do I do? Just call up my competitor and that I'm planning, you know, the predicate that I'm planning to use and order some products uh, and do side-by-side comparative testing and analysis. Well, sometimes you could do that. Sure. Um, but, you know, a lot of times um, th- this is some of the nice things I think about, you know, freedom of information and, and the, a lot of this being available in the public domain, you know, hopefully if you if you're um, citing a specific predicate device that you're going to compare substantial equivalence to, hopefully you've reviewed as much information about that product as you possibly can, including that device's 510k submission. And a lot of times when you do this, there is quite a bit of information that you can glean and extract from those submissions. I mean, go to that that product's website, you know, read the literature, you know, find as much information as you possibly can. You know, there's lots of ways to be able to demonstrate equivalence, I think. To me, I mean, certainly saying, you know, they're, the predicate device is, and this is very, very generic, and I don't mean this, you know, to be taken too literal, but the predicate device is blue. Oh, my device is blue. The predicate device is a pound. Oh, look, my device is a pound. So, you know, you're trying to basically tell the story that, you know, this predicate device has these characteristics. My device has, um, I'll say, similar characteristics or substantially equivalent characteristics. 
And you have an approach to this I really, really like. So I don't want to steal your thunder on this. <laughs> so hopefully that helps uh, folks understand a little bit that, you know, the, the bar you're trying to get to is that my device is, you know, yeah. for all intents and purposes, the same as this other thing that I'm comparing it to. Well, first of all, John, uh, I'm flattered that you said you don't want to steal from me. I, I would encourage you to do so because there's an expression, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> so I'm kind of flattered and I'm going to steal from you in just a moment. I think you can probably guess how. Yeah. But I thought I thought it was interesting. You started out in, in this part of our discussion by saying that uh, most of our audience is probably familiar with this. Oh. Well, I questioned that. I'm not sure that the data really would would, would support uh-huh. that that claim. And the reason why I say that, John, I'll share with you a statistic that I've shared many times. It changes a little bit, but not much over many, many years. About 75% of 510Ks that are submitted to the FDA today in 2022 are rejected. And of those ones that are rejected, about 85% of them are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the last or the lack thereof. So I find it fascinating how so many people in this industry, they think that substantial equivalence is such a simple concept, such a no-brainer. Well, if it is, how can you explain the statistics? Mm. And part of it is, John, the devil's in the details. You know, you mentioned anecdotally that, well, if you're if the competitor's device is blue and your device is blue. But what if it's not exactly the same shade of blue? What if yours is a darker blue and theirs is a lighter blue? And so on and so on. The regulation says that your devices have to be substantially equivalent. That does not say that they have to be exactly the same. And any differences, whether we're talking about differences in the technology, like, for example, the the blue color, or differences in the labeling, the company needs to address those differences and specifically say or, or show that these differences, their device is light blue, mine is dark. That's not important because, A, it does not create new questions of safety and effectiveness. That's requirement number one. And B, as I just talked about a minute ago, it does not change the overall risk. Every single difference, whether it's a, a change in the labeling, you're you're using one word and they're using another word, or there's a change in the, the color or whatever technological parameter, every single difference, you have to go through that analysis yes. of, does it, cha- does it create new questions of safety and efficacy? Does it change the overall risk? Um, and then the last thing that I'll mention, because uh, we've done a lot of things on substantial equivalence. I've done a webinar for Greenlight on Mm -hmm. substantial equivalence. Uh, We can provide a reference to that, um, as well as the different 510Ks. Every form of 510K relies on substantial equivalence, the traditional, the special, the abbreviated, and now even the safety and performance or SP 510K, but substantial equivalence in a different way. So just briefly to recap that, traditional 510Ks, about 75% of 510Ks are traditional. You need to show that it's substantially equivalent to another device, a device that's already on the market. A special 510K, about 20% of 510Ks are special 510Ks. You need to show that your uh, changed device is substantially equivalent to the pre-changed device. In an abbreviated 510K, or what is now sort of morphed into the safety and performance 510K, you do not show substantial equivalence to another device. You instead show substantial equivalence to a standard to a guidance document, to something like that. So in every single type of 510K, you need to show substantial equivalence. But how you show it to what you show it to is different. Uh, 
At the end of the day, the regulation, which, as you pointed out earlier, John, uh, the 510K was created in 1976. The regulation has not changed one sentence, one word, one punctuation mark since 1976. Yeah, there have been guidance documents that have come out, but the regulation itself has not changed on substantial equivalence. The regulation says that you have to show your device is substantially equivalent. It does not say how you show it. That's up to the manufacturer. Right. Moving on to the very last one, and then we can wrap this up, John, is formatting of the submission incorrectly. I would like to think that this is a no-brainer. What you're talking about here is submissions that are rejected under administrative review. Just to remind our audience, when you submit a 510K or any submission to the FDA, it's basically it's a two-step review process. The first step is the administrative review. The second step is the scientific or the substantive review. The administrative review is nothing more than when a bean counter sits down at FDA and looks at your submission and they have their version of the RTA checklist and they say, do you have this section? Do you have that section? And make sure that you're not missing anything. Make sure that you have all your signatures and so on. Make sure that you don't leave the page numbers out, which is one of the things that you mentioned in your column, John. I would like to think that, you know, people have graduated from elementary school. They don't need a reminder to put your name and your page number on your homework assignment. But regrettably, John, 38% of 510Ks that are rejected by the FDA, 38% are rejected on administrator review. Yeah. And I've said before, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, when a 510K or any other submission is rejected by the FDA on scientific review. Maybe FDA has a difference in your scientific methodology or your statistical analysis or something. Okay, that's fair job. That's FDA doing their job. Yeah. But when FDA re- rejects your submission on administrative review, that is 100% not FDA or anybody's fault. It's, it's 100% yeah. the company's fault. So given that you wrote this column in five years ago, John, but the statistics still remain about the same. About 38% are rejected on administrative review. Why is that? And what other advice can you give to our audience to, to eliminate that? Hmm. Why is that? I don't understand because this is just, um, to me, this is just, you know, I don't know. It's, it's common sense. I mean, I was trying to think, well, it's basic technical writing or what have you, but it's common sense. I mean, keep, again, I am preparing a bunch of information to support um, my claim, uh, my uh, indications for use, my intended use of my product, that it's substantially equivalent to a predicate or a multiple predicate or whatever the case may be. We can talk about that at a different time. But but I'm making the claim that it's substantially equivalent to something else that FDA has cleared on 510K before. It's my story, right? Um, the point you made earlier you know maybe my device has been published in some scientific journal i mean just to think oh well fda is going to go google that or pubmed find that and that's naive come on tell your story but make it easy for the reader to follow your story and you know simple things like pagination and that is so easy to do every modern word processor does that these days (laughs) Uh, it's just things like that. Providing a table of contents, you know, just making it very, very simple. I mean, this is the textbook, so to speak, for for your device, or the executive summary textbook for your device for FDA to review the information. I mean, 
you started out, John, by saying that this is common sense, and I agree this should be common sense. Well, if 38% of things things are rejected, it says it's not common sense. Yeah, but unfortunately, common sense is not as common as we would like to think. So I would go back to one of the first pieces of advice that you gave in your column, John, and that is follow the RTA checklist. Yeah. You know, it's it lists uh, many of the things that we just identified, about, including yeah. things like table of contents and, yes. and page numbers. So follow that. And for those that are working in the 510K universe, it, you could at least be comforted in the fact that you're not working in the PMA universe. Because in the PMA, PMA universe, believe it or not, John, the level of micromanagement in the submission is phenomenal to the point where FDA specifies font sizes and margin spacing and so on and so on. I mean, that to me is insulting, if not condescending, but we don't have that in the the 510K universe. The other thing that you said, John, that I like very much is tell a story. Obviously, this should be written, you know, as nonfiction, but it should be like a novel. (laughs) It should be something that somebody can sit down and read and it's easy for the reader to read. Don't make them jump through a bunch of hoops. I I get drafts from my customers all the time that are painful to read. I literally mean painful. And when I, one last thing, and then we'll wrap this up, John, as you know, I work as a consultant for the FDA. So I see submissions coming yeah. in from to the agency from time to time. And some of these submissions are terrific. Uh, but other submissions, they are literally painful to read. It's like, did you go to elementary school? Do you know how to construct a sentence with a noun and a in a verb and so on? Make sure that this thing is readable. It sounds like common sense, and I it is common sense. But, yeah. But unfortunately, it's not as common as we would think. So, uh, what are your final thoughts, John? Any final um, pieces of advice to to send our audience to ultimately try to improve the statistics that, in spite of your very good column that you wrote five years ago, a lot of people seem to be running into these same problems over and over again. Well, I mean, folks, if you're if you're curious or you, uh, I, I mean, the simple piece of advice is get somebody else's eyeballs looking at this, you know? Um, my experience, a lot of times a 510k submission is a, uh, a collaborative effort sometimes, you know, divide and conquer, you know, maybe I take this section, you take that section and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, somebody has got to put it all together. Right. And when somebody's put it all together and you've got the final draft or a draft that's, that's ready go find your professor, you know, maybe call Mike Drews or John Spear <laughs> and say, Hey, before I send this to FDA, can you look over this? I mean, that's the simplest, easiest, easiest thing that, that can be done. And I think one, you know, part of that might be helpful is, you know, it could be somebody within your company. That's cool. But maybe they don't have the intimate knowledge, you know, it probably shouldn't be somebody that's on the project team that's reviewing this right. because they're going to be, you know, sort of preconditioned, so to speak. So say, oh, well, you know, I know this because I worked on the project. Find somebody that probably hasn't worked on the project. They might be a little bit familiar, but they don't have intimate details because now they, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is find an objective reviewer that's not FDA before you submit it to FDA. That's the simplest, easiest thing one one can do uh, to try to correct some of these mistakes. I agree with you, John. And just to wrap up my part of the conversation, and then we can wrap up today's discussion, um, I would just like to amplify and throw a little gasoline on that last suggestion that you just made, and that is uh, get some other eyeballs on this. One of the things that I find so fascinating and, quite frankly, so scary about so many medical device companies is who's the 
first person to see your submission outside of your company. It's usually the FDA. I know. And to me, that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Get somebody, whether it's John or myself or somebody, to come in and, you know, this is, this is I don't need to be self-serving. I'm trying to, to, to share some of my... I mean, practice. we're tired of talking about these mistakes, right? <laughs> we are. We are. But one of the things that I do with my customers is before they go to the FDA with their pre-sub or their submission or whatever it is, they'll ask me to put my, come in, put my FDA reviewer hat on, read through their documents, sit through their presentation. And if I can be a bit blunt, bash the hell out of it. Because yeah. the idea is going to make a mistake, better for them to make it in front of me. Yeah. You know, F, you know, what, what do I count? You know, I, I don't matter, as opposed to making it at, at the FDA. And I don't want to go so far as to say that if a medical device company can get their submission through me, they can get it through the FDA. But I've been doing this long enough, John, I make a pretty good surrogate for the FDA. I'm sure. If yes. you have somebody come in and review your submission and say, oh, you're doing a wonderful job, pat yourself on the back, have a parade. They're not doing their job. You want somebody to come in and be brutally yes. honest. Yeah. And the last thing I would just remind you and our audience, John, is I know you're a, you're a expert when it comes to the design controls. This is not a foreign concept. What I'm describing here is the concept of an independent reviewer, yes. right? But it's not an independent reviewer in sort of the engineering sense of the word, which is the, the, the connotation of, of the, that regulation. It's the con concept of independent reviewer in the regulatory sense of the word. Yes. And so once again, John, we don't need more regulation to solve these problems. We've already got thousands and thousands of pages of that. What we need is more people understanding the intent of the regulation Absolutely. and being able to apply it in different circumstances. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about applying the concept of independent reviewer to um to a, to a regulatory review, as I just discussed, whether you're talking about applying the concept of show of life to software as a medical device, as I discussed earlier, you've got to get past this literal interpretation of regulation and think much more broadly, maybe even a little more philosophically, if you Absolutely. will. Those are my thoughts, John. Anything that you would add? And then we can wrap this up. Um, no, I, I don't know. I think that's a good place. I think that's a, a good point uh, to stop the conversation. And, and folks, please, so a lot of these things is hopefully you've picked up from from Mike and and my conversation on this topic. They're they're absolutely in your control. Uh, these are things that you can absolutely take care of yourself, uh, and with a little help, you know. Again, you know, sometimes when I work on something, you know, I I know what's there um, because I wrote it, you know, and it's like it just and. And, you know, I could take it to my mom and she's going to think that it's amazing and she's going to want a copy of it and she's going to want to put it on her refrigerator. Put it so on the refrigerator. My mom yeah, might not be the best person to, to ask to, to give a critical review. As Mike said, find an independent person. But it could be a little bit more critical because, you know, I want friendly, um, someone who's friendly to the cause, uh, so to speak, not the FDA isn't, but, but I want them to, to beat it up, rip it apart, uh, mash the hell out of it uh, bef before I send it off. So, um, and you know, if you can't find anybody, um, reach out to me, reach out to Mike, we'll happily help you. Uh, it's, it's just, we wanted to change the, st the statistics on this topic. Uh, these are in our control as an industry. Could not agree more, John. All right. Well, Mike, thank you. It was, uh, good to go back and sadly review an article that, that I wrote five years ago that is still applicable and appropriate. So, industry listen pay attention change this make this article obsolete uh so that we don't have to talk about these mistakes anymore and 
uh, you know, I hope you're enjoying the Global Medical Device podcast. And until next time, uh, we'll talk to you real soon. The medical device industry is nothing if not unique. So we built software that works the same way. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management system designed by medical device professionals to meet the unique needs of medical device companies. Our cloud-based platform allows companies to bring safer products to market up to three times faster while reducing risk and lowering cost. Visit www.greenlight.guru today to request your free personalized demo of Greenlight Guru.